be reading this morning from 2 Timothy 3, verses 15 through 17. And that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that a man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. There are great things that are going on at Graber Road. I hope that you appreciate that. Doug Thompson prayed this morning, or excuse me, John, uh, John uh, Gately mentioned in the, his comments for Lord's Supper that there was one who was celebrating Lord's Supper for the first time, and when in fact there are two, actually. Uh, Lauren Belcher obeyed the gospel this past Sunday after a lengthy study, and we're glad for her. She's sitting way back here in the back behind Claude and Marjorie. Be sure and get a chance to greet her, but... Uh, as far as Parker Martin, he obeyed the gospel this past Wednesday night. Um, the previous week, we had uh, uh, Shalom Nehru, who obeyed the gospel the previous Wednesday night. And also, uh, John Starr Ross, I just want to say John Ross, but I know you're known as John Starr here in this local church. Uh, John obeyed the gospel, I believe, last Saturday, a week ago Saturday. And so, be sure and welcome these four Christians. It's a wonderful thing to have four, uh, four new brothers and sisters in Christ in such a short period of time. Brothers and sisters, we want to keep the momentum going. Who is it that we can reach? Who is it that we can study with? Who is it that needs the gospel message? I'd invite you, uh, several weeks ago, we talked about this blue card, and you should still have the blue card in your Bible. Uh, that's where I ask you to keep it. Get, out, get that out and take a look at it. If you don't have a blue card, and maybe for whatever reason you lost yours or you missed it, they are available back here on the evangelism table, and it just simply says, help us to reach 10 new families. Ten new families. And I ask you to make a list of people that you know that are, you have contact with on a regular basis, maybe daily basis, maybe neighbors, maybe friends, maybe family members, maybe coworkers. And I ask you to take a look at that list and write those names down. What have you done with that list since? Have you prayed about each one of those people? Have you thought about each one of those people and how you can strike up a spiritual conversation with them? Have you maybe visited or invited those people to come and share a meal with you and your family or taking them out to eat and showing them the love and care and concern that you have for them? Have you started studying with those people? At the very least, brothers and sisters, take this list and I want you to this week to take that list and say, how can I reach these people? I want to pray about these people. I want to think about these people and I want to ask God for open doors so that I can share the gospel with these people. That's 10 families or 10 souls that matter to God. How am I being used and how is God using me to reach them with the gospel message? Take that list, put it back in your Bible and get out. Hopefully you received a copy of the blue book. The blue book. Is there anybody that needs a copy of this? We'll be glad to get you one uh, if you came in after the bell or after the uh, beginning of worship. And we'll be glad to, uh, to provide this for you. But what we're doing as a congregation is we're taking a number of weeks and we're going through each book of the Back to the Bible study method. There are three books and we're spending about two weeks per book and uh, so we should be done in about three weeks uh, following this Sunday. I hope this is helpful to you in a number of ways, not only to reinforce the doctrine that we already understand from the Bible, to help us to be able to put together scriptures to say, this is how we put a theology together about the church and what God wants of the church and what he has to say about the organization of the church and the blue book, 
but also to understand that this is a simple method. This is something that you can do. It's just basically opening up, turning to a page, looking at a scripture, reading the scripture, and then answering the question. You can do that if you can turn in your Bible. And hopefully you can get a copy of the Bible that's similar to the one of the person that you're studying with. And if you're there before they are, maybe just call out the page number and help them to understand and help them to, to get there a little bit quicker. You can do this. I know you can. Let's talk about the Blue Book this morning, which is all about the church. All about the organization of the church, all about the nature of the church. And if you open the book together, you note how this proceeds. We're going to cover the two, first two sections this morning. That is the church all together about what it is, about who built it. And then we're going to talk about the organization of the church. And Lord willing, next Sunday we'll cover the worship and also the name of the church. Because these things are things that our world is hopelessly confused about. Do you realize in the year 2000, there were roughly, roughly 17,000 different distinct denominations. You say, what's a denomination? It's a man-made division of what Christ wanted for his one church. And I'm already answering one question for you that we're going to get to. It's a distinction that says we're distinct from this other group who serves Christ by this man-made tradition, by this thing or this interpretation, by this way that we are, uh, are distinguish ourselves. And the question we want to consider this morning from the blue book and that we're going to consider with hopefully our study is this, is that really what God wants? Does God want 17,000 at least? I'm sure it's more by 20 years later, 21 years later. Is that what God wants as far as what his, the church that his son Jesus Christ built? Is that really biblical? Let's consider that this morning as we begin Turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. What better way to start this study than starting with the words of Jesus? And in the start of the blue book, it's just a matter of saying, all right, let's all get our Bibles. Let's all turn to Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. This uh, scripture up here on the, um, on the projector for you is New King James Version. If you use a different version, that's fine. Just be, uh, be sure that they kind of line up and, and you're able to answer the questions using the version that you use. Jesus said, I say to you that you are Peter. And answering Peter's statement that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Matthew 16, verse 17, Jesus said, on this rock I will build my, circle the word, church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. The first question, you can do this. Who built the church? The answer is Jesus built the church. Upon this rock, I, Jesus, will build my, Jesus's, church. Who built the church? Jesus did. So then here's the next question. You can do this. To whom does the church belong? I'll give you a hint. It's the same answer as the very first answer. It's Jesus. And Jesus, did he build churches, plural? Upon this rock, I will build my churches, or did he build Church, singular, which is it? It's singular. He only built one church. Next question. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 to 23. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 to 23. I love this section of scripture as well as Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1 is going to emphasize Christ as the head. 
as Christ as supreme, as Christ as preeminent over the church. But what Ephesians does is he focuses especially on what the church looks like and how the church is organized and, and, uh, and what the church's responsibility and role is as the body of Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 to 23 which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is, which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all." That last two verses are especially important for answering these questions, verses 22 and verse 23. Is Jesus the head over all things to the church? You may circle it there in your Bible. It is his body, and the answer is yes. In verse 23, the church is called his, it's his body. When I see the word body in the New Testament, and it has reference to an organization or a group, that's synonymous. That's the same thing as being referred to as the church. We can look at another passage in Colossians chapter 1 verse 8, uh, 15 and it mentions that he is he delivered us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. Church, body, kingdom, they're all the same. They're all the same. Don't misunderstand that Bible truth. The next question. Well, actually let's stop here just for a second. Write down page 67 page 68. Here's an illustration here in your Evangelism Simplified book that you can use. There are some people who say today that there's another head. That Christ is head, yes, but there's another head here on earth that we need to listen to and that we need to respect. Does a religious group like that honor the head, which is Jesus? Or does it make something that's really different than what God has, has, has uh, purposed with regard to the church? You see, Christ's body or Christ as a whole is not a two-headed monster. It's not Christ and somebody else. Neither is it Christ who is head over the church singular, Christ joined to multiple bodies. There's one head, there's one body. Nature speaks to that as far as how God wants it organized. You don't normally find in an ordinary circumstance, an ordinary birth, where there's not that, a head attached to a body. That's God's illustration for the way that his church is put together, and you can definitely use that in page 68, page 69, there in your Evangelism Simplified book. Next scripture is still in the book of Ephesians. Flip over to chapter 4, and we'll read 4 through 6. There is one body... There is one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Notice all the alls there, like, just like the very end of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. He is uh, the fullness of him who fills all in all. But the question that we want to ask is, is there only one hope? Is that one of the ones that he mentioned there in Ephesians 4, verses 4 and following? The answer is yes. Is there only one Holy Spirit? The answer is yes. Is there only one body, one church? Remember, they're synonymous. And the answer is yes. Are you tracking? Are you following? Let's turn the page. Let's keep going. John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. John 17, 20 and 21. 
I know it's easy to just look up at me and assume that the scriptures are going to be up there, but folks, there's something about the doing of it, where you can open and turn your Bible and where you can write down the answers, and hopefully you'll use the blue book as your teacher's copy so that when you sit down to study, you've already got these uh, gone through them, you've already got them answered, and you know what's coming next. John 17, 2021 is sometimes referred to the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It's the last prayer that we have recorded before Jesus goes to the cross. Well, I say that, but uh, there were the prayers in the garden, but the prayer that he offers, especially on behalf of his disciples. And look at John 17, verses 20 and 21. Jesus says, I do not pray for these alone, speaking of his apostles, but also for all those who will believe on me through their word, that they may all be one, circle it, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one, circle it, in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. Four times in the context, Jesus uses the word one. So here's the question. Did Jesus pray that his followers all be one? And the answer is yes, absolutely. Next question. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. Paul is writing to Christians. He's writing to a church that's divided, that's got all kinds of problems. I went to a foreign country once, uh, Tanzania, believe it or not, and had a guy there that was establishing and sowing the seed of New Testament Christianity. And I said, what problems do you establish or what problems do you find in, in a new congregation and really helping a congregation grow from infancy? He said, read 1 Corinthians. He said, just about every single problem that those people faced, these people face here in Tanzania as we're trying to establish New Testament Christianity. Notice what Paul writes to these Christians, verse 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but you all be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. Based upon what we've just read about what Jesus prayed for, about what Paul said about uh, uh, unity in Ephesians, the question is, is religious division condemned? And the answer is yes. Follow up. Since religious division is condemned and since Jesus prayed that all of his followers be one, must we strive to be one religiously? Yes or no? Yes, exactly. It's clear as crystal, right there in the middle of your Bible. Next question, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18. Ephesians and Colossians are looking at two sides of the same coin. One of them, just like your coins that you've got in your pocket, has a head on it. And the other side is the body. Okay, Ephesians is all about the body. Colossians is all about the head. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18 The Bible says he is the head of the body, notice, singular, the church, singular, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Here's the question. Since Jesus is the head of the church, the body, should we go to anyone other than Jesus and the inspired writers of the New Testament to learn the organization, the worship, and the name of his church? The answer is no. 
Once again, brothers and sisters, if we refer back to the green book, we start with the fact that truth is knowable. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. And that God the Father is truth. Sanctify them by thy truth. Your word is truth. John 17, verse 17. God faithfully sent his son full of grace and truth. John chapter 1, verse 14. Jesus came, and after he left this earth, he sent the Holy Spirit to guide the apostles into all truth. John 14, verse 26. John 15, 26. John 16. 16, verse 13, the Holy Spirit faithfully caused those apostles to remember everything that, they, that Jesus said to them. And as the apostles gave what God wanted about truth to the early disciples, they were able to fashion and to organize the church, everything about the way God wanted salvation to be communicated, and they were able to do that within the first century before, uh, whenever, the, uh, whenever the church was in its infancy. As we follow the words of inspired writers, we are following the word of God. As we go away and we try and assume certain things about the church, we're going away from the pattern and going away from what God said. The next question, Matthew 15 and verse 13, as we talk about the organization of the church, the organization of the church, Matthew 15 and verse 13, maybe you're already there, but you can use the occasion whenever I was going back to the blue book to talk about it. But he, Jesus, answered and said, every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. He was speaking about individuals on that occasion, but isn't it true that individuals make up an organization? And if it is that you have people that are not adhering to the word of God, like Matthew 7, 21 through 23, that God will uproot those. If a church is not built according with the word of God, will it be uprooted? The answer is yes. Next question. Acts chapter 14, verse 13, uh, 23, sorry, Acts 14, verse 23. How is the church organized? Is it something that God has left up to man? Is it God, something God has said? It's okay, it's one of those matters of judgment, how you do that. We go to the book of history the only book of history for the New Testament church. There's a lot of history in the epistles, but understand that this is Luke recording everything that uh, happened there in the early church that we need to be aware of. Acts 14, verse 23, as Paul is there on his missionary journey, it says, so when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So did these inspired men ordain elders in every church? Yes. Question, are we right if we do that as they did in ordaining a plurality, that's more than one, a plurality of elders in every congregation? The answer is yes. We're following an example, an inspired example. Could we be wrong if we did not organize the church the way that those inspired men of God did? Possibility exists, doesn't it? You shall know the truth. Truth is knowable. That means whatever's not of truth is false, is not right. And we could be wrong if we deviate or go away from that inspired pattern. Staying in the book of Acts, in the book of examples, in the book of history. Acts chapter 20, verses 17, and then we'll jump down to verse 28. Paul is heading back to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to be bound and taken to Rome. He's already had that revealed to him. He knows that this dear church to him, the Ephesian church, he's probably never going to see the elders again. If you're going to have one last lesson and one last conversation with dear people that, are, that, are, uh, that you love dearly, what would you say to them? 
If you were going to have a last conversation with spiritually elders, what would you say? Verse 17, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. Jump down to verse 28. And he says to them, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among whom, uh, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Question is, are the elders the overseers of the church? The answer is yes. Yes, they are. Circle the three words for elders because those are all three titles that are referring to the exact same thing. They're synonymous. They have different uh, implications based upon what they're, uh, how they're used. But at the same time, you find the elders, the older men, the uh, overseers, the ones who keep an oversight over the congregation, and also the shepherds, the uh, ones who are among the sheep and shepherding the sheep. All three of those refer to the same person in the same office. Let's go to Titus, the book of Titus, chapter 1. Here's the qualifications of these elders, of these shepherds, of these bishops. Titus, chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, Paul says to Titus, For this reason, Titus, I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For if a bishop, or sorry, for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy uh, for money, but hospitable, lovers what is good, uh, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, taught, uh, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convict those who contradict. Again, we could have stopped back up in verse seven, but I want you to understand there's a responsibility of what the elders are doing. When Paul told Titus all these things are put to these things in order, did he tell them to ordain elders? The answer is yes. When we do as a congregation what Titus did concerning the church, are we doing the will of God? The answer is yes. The terms we've looked at both in Acts 20 and here in Titus chapter one, are they the same? Elder, bishop, overseer in reference to the same office? The answer is yes. Very good. A couple more. Flip back a couple pages to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We'll read verses 1 and 2 and then verse 6. For time's sake, but we can uh, definitely read all seven verses. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires a position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop must then be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach. Jump down to verse 6. Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Must an elder be married? According to this qualification, according to what we find here, the answer is yes. Must an elder have children? Verse 4, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. Yes. May a new convert, may a novice, may a newbie, if a modern vernacular, may a newbie be, uh, be considered an elder, as an elder. No, there's a danger of pride there. There's a danger of puffing himself up and saying, look, I've only been a convert for just a little while and these people decided me to go ahead and make me a leader in their congregation. 
there's a danger of pride in creeping in in a situation like that. The organization of the church requires men, older men, men who are overseers and shepherds, who are married, who have children, who are in obedience. Those things are required. Stay in 1 Timothy, look at verses 8 through 13. Here's a qualification of a different office. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greed for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, and then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, and faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husband of one wife, ruling their children in their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus." What church office is under discussion here? It's the office of what we call deacons. Is it God's plan that there be qualified elders and deacons in every congregation? It's God's plan. That's the way that it's, uh, God wants it. Is it always the case that, that that's, the, that's the case? No, it's not. But this is the ideal of what God wants us to strive for as given by these inspired writers. Last one that we're going to talk about this morning, and then you can relax just for a few minutes. Don't disengage, but you can relax just for a few minutes. Look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. If I'm going to go to any place in the New Testament to show this organization about how God wants the church and how he wants it to be organized, where can I go? Remember Philippians 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of the Lord Jesus Christ, slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ, of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops. I can also substitute elders, overseers, uh, shepherds, with the elders or the bishops and deacons. And so we see a divine pattern that's given here. How God wants the church organized and it is consisted of who? Seeing it, overseeing it. Elders as well as deacons serving in the church. That's the biblical pattern. A plurality of elders, more than one, and then deacons who serve under those elders. Now, just for a moment, let me give you an illustration. The way that the New Testament paints the organization of the church is this. Christ is the head. That is not in dispute. Ephesians 1, verse 22 and 23, he's uh, given all things, uh, put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. The fullness of him who fills all in all. First Peter chapter 5 talks about Jesus as the chief shepherd, the one to whom all the elders will have to give an account of themselves. It's a fearful thing to be an elder. Can you imagine? Having a burden and the weight to understand that you're not only responsible for your soul, for how you've led your family, but also to watch out for the souls of the people who are gathered here in this room. The souls of the people who chose for whatever reason not to be here this morning. The souls of the people who are worshiping at home and trying to, trying to stay engaged. That's their responsibility is to watch out for you. That's why Hebrews 13 has so much to say to, to how we respond to elders. You don't want to cause an elder grief. You don't want to have to uh, have them awake at night thinking about you. You make your life right with Christ. You make sure that your walk with Christ is what it ought to be so that they can serve with joy and not with sorrow. That's something I do, and that's a way that I respond to those who rule over us. So Christ is the chief shepherd, and the church, the body, the flock, is the rest of it. Folks, that's all of us, including elders, deacons, preachers, teachers, uh, whoever serves. 
We're all a part of the flock of the body of God. What's our responsibility? To serve Christ. To make sure that our lives and our hearts are in line with Christ, just like we talked about. But also to serve one another. You realize you can't serve somebody that you're not engaged with? You realize that if your relationship exists solely based upon our worship service and then you get up and you walk out of this room not to contact anybody else in this congregation for the rest of the week or the rest of the month or the rest of the year, and that's the only contact you have with the people of God, you are not obeying what Paul says in Romans chapter 12 and verses 10 through 13 about how we give honor to one another, how we give preference to one another, how we serve one another and how we take care of one another, how we bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, Galatians chapter six. That's your responsibility, that's my responsibility, the church. But there's also a reaching the lost and serving the lost, Galatians six, nine and 10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially those of the household of faith. Folks, that's what the church is about. That's what all of us are about. But in the organization of the church, just like what we talked about in the blue book, it's this. The church has elders, shepherds, overseers that are appointed with a special task that are under the authority of Christ and that are charged with faithfully shepherding the church here on earth to make sure that the doctrine is what it ought to be. That what you hear coming out of my mouth and from the pulpit and from our Bible classes and, and any time that the word of God is brought out that what they're saying and what's being said is faithful to what God wants us to be and who he wants us to be. That's their responsibility. They have the responsibility to make sure that as John prayed, or sorry, uh, as David prayed a little while ago, that, that the church funds are to be used in a way that honors and glorifies Christ. Those things are their responsibility. And as they shepherd, they're constantly looking up to Christ and saying, what does he want us to do? How does he want us to behave? What's the church that he wants? And what's the direction? And they're doing that with wisdom. Hope you appreciate your elders. That's their job. And you and I, as people who are non-elders, are part of the flock and the body of kingdom, and they watch out for us. They watch out for our souls. But within this division, this subset of Christians, underneath the authority of these elders, we could put the deacons in their own special bubbles, if you like. Their own special bubbles, once again, they're still a part of the flock. But if the elders look around and they say, here's a problem we see. I like to think about deacons taking care of physical problems with spiritual ramifications. Here's something that needs to be taken care of within the church as a physical responsibility, but it has spiritual consequences. The air conditioner breaks. Is that going to affect our ability to worship? Well, we'd say no, not overall, but I tell you what, it's a whole lot easier to sit and concentrate on what's coming out of the preacher's mouth whenever you're sitting in, you know, 70 degree weather as opposed to 85. Does that have spiritual consequences? The answer is yes. Do we have deacons that take care of things like that? And the answer is yes. Who make sure that things like uh, the lights stay on? Who takes care of the things like the lawn and the garden and all of those things and the parking lot striped? And, and there are spiritual things, consequences that the deacons take care of in physical activities. And so we find we've got deacons over youth to make sure that our youth are taken care of and, and that they're, they're, uh, they're growing the way that they ought to, that they're planning social activities and helpful activities for those, for those youth to take, uh, to take part in. 
Those things are responsibilities. And so you find deacons serving in different places in the aspect of the church and in the service of the church for the good of the body as a whole. Folks, that's the organization. That's the way God wants it. And the problem is, is that so many people have said, well, we can do church however we want to. That we can make the church whatever we want to. That we can run the church like a business. You know any local denominations that treat the church like a business? Catherine and I were talking about this yesterday, and the fact that there are so many people that we know that are out in the world that church hop routinely. They go from this place to this place to this place. Oh, I didn't like the way they did the youth program there. Oh, we're going to jump over here. Oh, I didn't like the worship leader over there, so let's jump over here. Oh, we didn't like the the way that they, you know, closed out the assembly, and so we're going to jump over here. And you find that routinely there are people that will move from one denomination to the next. And I read this this morning, and it just struck me. If you organize the church like a business... Don't be surprised when your consumers go elsewhere when you don't deliver the goods on what you want. We're a consumeristic society, and we have the idea that everything in consumerism ought to apply to us and ought to appeal to us, and if something doesn't please me, well, I'm just going to go down the church down the road, and almost guaranteed, sadly, you're going to find what you want. You want the home of the 30-minute worship? I guarantee there's a church out there. that You want something that says you're good if you just you know, stay home and don't have to do anything? I guarantee you're going to find a place like that. We're not starting with the right point. We're not asking the right questions. What does God want? That's what the blue book is designed to do. That's how it's designed to help us to say, let's go back to the original. Let's take a look at the blueprint of what God wants for his church. And I find that Christ is the head, that the church is the body, only one head, one body. And I find the elders are shepherding a local congregation. They don't have authority outside of these, pe- these people, these walls. And we find that those elders are shepherding the congregation and trying to lead them in the path of eternal. To lead the congregation faithfully in the steps of Jesus. That's the blueprint. That's the organization. And so many people are so misunderstood and so confused about that. Open up your Bible because the answers are there. The answers are there not only for that, but also for salvation. We have four precious souls over the past two weeks that have obeyed the gospel. Maybe there's somebody here this morning that knows they need to follow in the path of salvation. To realize that that is there, available for them, open, blown open the doors of death, as we sang from Joseph a little while ago, so that just like up from the grave he arose, up from the grave we arose. To walk in newness of life, Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. You can be a part of the church the kingdom, the body this morning, the one that Jesus Christ built, the one that Jesus Christ paid for with his own blood. If you need that this morning, we stand ready to help you. Maybe as a Christian, you need prayers and encouragement from the congregation. Maybe you need the help of brothers and sisters in Christ. Whatever your needs are, we long to assist you as we stand and sing our invitation song.